I just worry about some of these young kids when they got their computer in their hand. When I lecture college kids, I says, why is a person in another city following you? Because they want to piss you off at some point. If you're having a bad game or you beat their team, don't respond. That's why I do no social media because, you know, I could be having a bad day. And if somebody says something, it's I'm not going to let it go. Right. I, I don't have that let go gene. Welcome to another episode of Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Today's guest is someone I consider to be a dear friend, even though he does say crazy shit from time to time. But what I love about him is that he's always honest, even if you don't want to hear it. In fact, he was so honest with me one time that he told me somebody I'd been dating for years wasn't the one. I'll get into that and more with Charles Barkley next. So if I'm ever tempted to pat myself on the back because I've won an Emmy, polite stunt, uh, I'm just going to think about my next guest who has won like 511 Emmys as part of TNT's wildly entertaining NBA studio show inside the NBA. In fact, they may be the only show I can think of in sports television where you're sort of waiting for the game to be over just to see what ignorant things they have to say about everything going on in the NBA and of course about the games that they've just shown. But in general, I think Chuck is probably the one in-studio analyst in maybe all of sports who has no peer. But the best part about Chuck is as good as he is an analyst, he's an even better friend. I'm going to start this podcast by telling a story, um, one of my favorite Charles Barkley stories, in fact. And I see the worried look on Charles's face right now because everybody got a story about you and you know this, right? <laughs> yeah. So this is when I was in Orlando and the Lakers were playing the Magic uh, in the finals. And you were, of course, there uh, with TNT and a bunch of people were going out. So we had all gone out to this outdoor place that was downtown. And I was with um, my then boyfriend, X. And you and I were talking, it was a bunch of us. He got up to use the bathroom. As soon as he got up, you said, sis, he ain't the one. Yeah, <laughs> You literally told me that in that moment. I was like, yeah. oh, my God, we've been together six years. I don't know how to feel about this. Now you're like, he's not going to make it. But you're like, I like him, though, but he's not going to make it. <laughs> well, I have a rule with my girlfriends. Mm -hmm. One of the big keys to my life is the people around me have to be honest. The hardest thing about being rich and famous is there are a lot of people around you who won't be honest with you because they're on the payroll. They want you to buy the meals. They want you to buy the drinks. They want to be on your private jet. So there's very few people around you who are honest with you all the time. That's the one thing I demand out of my friends. Even if, if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. Uh, you don't have to kiss my behind. I'm going to buy the meal. I'm not going to get upset if you disagree with me. But that's important. And one thing I tell girls who are friends of mine, that's two years, baby. If a man ain't going to marry you after two years, kick him to the curb. I mean, if you with this guy five, six years, like, no, 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 he ain't going to marry you. He ain't the one. Because once you get older, you start realizing how, man, man, this thing is real life. Two years is a long time. Six months ain't a long time. A year is starting to get to that point. But if you with somebody for two years, 
you know if they're the one or not. Now, if you don't want to get married, that's a different animal. But if you're a woman who wants to get married, you know after if you're going to give two years out of your life to a person, that's a good amount of time. If he ain't going to jump in, he got to go. Well, we had some extenuating circumstances. One, I was moving around quite a bit. That's always an excuse. <laughs> he I, wanted to marry me, really. Did. He asked me. He wanted to marry me, but I just didn't but feel you, like but we you were ready. It. You knew it, though. Yeah, deep down, I yeah, knew it. Yeah, you knew it. I knew it. Yeah. No, you were right. You, but, you do know... And it was a great relationship for me because it helped me grow up yeah. in terms of like what it meant to really be committed in a relationship. And he probably can be a good friend. Um, I don't know about all that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just because sometimes it's hard to be friends with people that you've... I mean, we lived together for two years. We were in a relationship mm-hmm. for a long time. Like, that's just... That's a lot. That's well, a no, lot to saying, try to bring I'm to saying, a friendship. But I'm, I'm saying, though, he, y'all probably were great friends. Oh, yeah, we were. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. definitely during the process. But, you know, I think for me at that point, my, my life was so transient. I didn't know deep down if he was actually the one. Uh-huh. But he taught me a lot about relationships, a lot of really good things. Um, he often said to me that, that men know quicker than women when it comes to whether or not they're the one. Yeah, I think it's important. Because to be with somebody all the time, it's a lot. Like, I'm selfish, want to be alone, and I think it's hurt me. Because, you know, being famous, and I'm not saying that to be cocky, I mean, I get tired. I mean, you are famous. I, 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 you get tired of people. Mm-hmm. You get tired, like, I just want to watch TV by myself. I don't want to sign autographs. I don't want to take pictures. I don't want to talk. I just want to watch TV and sports and movies, and I'm good. So it's a learning experience. Well, it's hard because you feel that way, but you can't say it because yeah. people always perceive it that way. Because yeah. I, I get worn down by it, too, and I especially worry about the impact that it has on people who are my friends who I want to spend time. Yeah. Like, I bet it's very rare that you can go out with a friend of yours <laughs> and not have to. That's crazy. Yeah, sign like, like. When you go out with your regular friends, they're like. Yo, man, you have to do this every day? Because I think it's, I, I, I never turn a person down for autographs. And I always take pictures unless I'm eating. I think that goes with the job. But it's stressful. Because, like, you never get to, like, hey, guys, let's just go have a drink. Let's just grab dinner. Because it brings a lot of things into play. And then, like I say, when I'm with my regular friends, uh, they're like, just like this every day for you? I'm like, yeah, this is my life every day. Every time you step out the yeah, house, man. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah I, said, I, I use this analogy. When I go to the grocery store, people want to talk to you. They're like, what you doing here? I'm like, I'm here to get groceries. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm here for. Charles, you really go uh, grocery shopping? I think one of the keys to being successful is doing stuff for yourself. Okay. I mean, you could pay people to do it, but I think that's stupid. <laughs> right. I do. I think it's stupid. I think celebrities waste so much money on stuff that they could do themselves. Yeah, you make a lot of money, uh, but you see that 75 80% of jocks go broke. I think if they would be realistic and did do more stuff, like, yeah, you can afford to pay somebody $100,000. That's not a lot of money when you're making three, four, five, ten, thirty, forty million, but it adds up over time. Now, you know they do have DoorDash, so yeah. you can actually get it delivered to your house, so you really don't have to go, and it's like a much smaller fee. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I get tired of just... Like I said, I like being at my house, but like I want to get out sometime and do normal things. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that about how sometimes even the public attention wears you down. Um, like you, I've been around a lot of celebrities, 
uh, you've been around a lot of AAA celebrities, yeah. but you are by far the most comfortable celebrity I've ever known. Um, especially like when you're in public, like you mentioned, you don't turn people down, yeah. you know, for autographs and pictures. How have you managed after so many years of doing this to not let fame or celebrity kind of not just change who you are, but change how you operate? Two things. Number one, it beats working. I tell all these guys, if you want peace and quiet and don't want to be bothered, go get a nine to five. And after you work nine to five about two years and you make about $57,000, you're going to be like, I think I want that other job back. And that's the number one thing. This ain't working. Uh, and then you play a silly game like basketball. It's a silly game. It, it's, it's the greatest thing ever happened to me. But the number one thing I tell myself, yo, man, you're not a teacher, fireman, policeman, doctor, somebody who's in the armed services. You dribble a silly ball. And that's the number one thing I learned a long time ago. Don't take yourself. I think a lot of celebrities take themselves a little bit too serious. Like, yo, dude, you dribble a ball. You run a football. You hit a baseball. Like, there's people out here who, like, really important and significant in the world. And that's why I, I, I've been good at being Charles Barker. Like, yo, man, people want to say hello to you. They want to take a picture because you dribble a, a silly ball. That's an honor and a privilege. And that's the number one thing, Jamel. There's nothing worse than being around a celebrity who is an ass. Uh, and we know them. Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm not signing autographs. I'm not taking pictures. And you just kind of sit at the table like this. <laughs> like, you know, it would just take a second. They really want to acknowledge you. It's awkward. It's awkward. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've been around a lot of those, and I never get it. But I tell them, I say, yo, man, if you, you, they're paying, like, obviously today, they're not paying you $25 million just to play basketball. It all goes together. I said, you are so lucky and fortunate. And I ain't trying to be a good guy or anything like that. Like, they're not paying you all that money. All the stuff goes with it. The, 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 for Sports Center to talk bad about you, for the newspaper guys to talk bad about you, it's all. You don't get to cherry pick just the good parts. I know, like, uh, when, when we talk about the NBA, they're like, well, Charles Barkley never won the championship. I understand that. I'm going to be all right. But that goes with it. They can't say Charles Barkley was a great player and say uh, and all these other things. You don't get to cherry pick all the good stuff. It, it's, it's all encompassing. Yeah, George Clooney, I thought he told a great story a long time ago about one of the reasons why, you know, he tries to take pictures and and does autographs is because he realizes that he's making somebody else's moment in yes. their life. Yes. He's thinking more about the story they tell after they meet him. Yes. You know, like, oh my God, I ran into Charles Barkley yeah. and he was the greatest and he told me this story and this and that. And, you That's know, a it's, big deal. it's a big deal to people. Yeah. Because, first of all, I don't think you ever know what's going on in their life. Like, first of all, let's get, well, it only takes a half a minute or a minute to do it, and then it's over with. But you never know who might be just having a bad day. Uh, you don't know if, what, what what's going on in their life. So I, I, I'll give you a quick story. I was at the Final Four, and this lady comes up and talked to me. And I noticed something a little weird about her hair. And I just started talking. She said, can I say hello to you? I said, of course you can say hello to me. And I says, where are you from? She says, blah, 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 blah. And finally she says, can I tell you something serious? I said, sure. What's she says, I, I, I'm going through chemo 
and radiation. I, I got stage four cancer. Because I told you, I noticed some. she had a wig on. Mm-hmm. I couldn't figure it out right away. And for me to, she says, you just really made my day. I said, and, and I didn't even know she had cancer to the end of the conversation. But if I had to just blew her off, first of all, she's battling cancer. And if I had to just blew her off, and like I say, I would have never known she had cancer. I gave her a big hug and everything. But for me to take three to f- minutes out of my life to brighten her day, it made my final four weekend. Because I like, man, this lady got cancer. And she wanted to say hello to me and just acknowledge me. I'm like, and that was cool. An equally great story, one that I thought uh, really summed up who you are, was the story of your friendship with Lynn Wang. Yeah. Yeah. Tell everybody that, that story, because it, it was really, I thought, uh, one that just captured the essence of who you are. Well, I, you know, Jamil, I look at you like this, too. Like, first meeting you, and I consider you a friend. And I just met this guy. I was speaking at Kevin Johnson's event in Sacramento. And I was just sitting at the bar chilling the night before. And this guy just starts talking to me. Hey, I'm a fan, blah, blah, blah. And we just sit and talk. And I said, yeah, I'm getting ready to walk to dinner. And he says, me too. I said, well, let's just go to dinner together. We end up hanging out for the night. And we had a great time just sitting there for a couple hours and then going to dinner. And then he starts sending me this dog food. <laughs> uh, I guess he, he was like a genius. Mm-hmm. And we kept in contact for like X amount of years, uh, three or four years. And and he came to Atlanta a few times to the studio. And the, high, the, the highlight of our relationship was, I'm from a small town in Alabama. And uh, we're at my mom's funeral. And my homeboys like, Yo, man, who's the Asian dude in the back? <laughs> and I'm like, what Asian dude? They're like, the dude over here. And it was Lynn. So he came to my mom's funeral, and it meant the world to me. Because he lived an hour. It wasn't like he, it was not an easy trip. And then uh, about two years later, I get a call. His daughter calls me and says, hey, Mr. Barkley, I don't want to bother you. I stole your number out of my dad's phone, but... He has brain cancer, and he's not going to live much longer. And I called him and kind of yelled at him, like, yo, man, why didn't you tell me you were struggling, blah, 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 blah. And it was it was tough. He said, yo, man, you got a lot going on. Didn't want to bother you. And then to, to sum up the story, he passed away. I was able to get to his funeral. So <laughs> to go back to my mom's, I'm at this Asian funeral in Iowa, let me guess, only black guy there, maybe? By far, the only <laughs> only big black person there. And they're like, and his family, you know, that was weird. It's, it's, I didn't know anybody because I never met his wife, daughter, and son. And she comes toward me, and I got and She says, I can't believe you're here. I said, who, who are you? He says, I'm Shirley. I'm Lynn's daughter. I'm like, oh, we finally get to meet. And everybody starts, and this is how humble this dude is. I guess he had been bringing people over his country, sponsoring them, getting them jobs. I mean, he was like a, a modern-day hero to these people. He bought them all over from his country, got them jobs, and like they were all geniuses. And I'm talking dozens of people. Uh, he had sponsored them to come over, and uh, it was so cool. They were telling this story, and I didn't, he didn't even tell me any of this stuff about himself. Uh, and then I got up and said, hey, listen, y'all— and out of all the things I've did in my life, Jamel, I've never gotten a response 
that I did with the Lynn, Lynn thing. Because she wrote about it. Yes. And that's how I heard about yeah. it, because I saw the story, and it went viral. Yeah, and, um, it was crazy. It was really- but Out of all the things I've ever did in my life, I've never got a positive response or uh, to this article. I mean, I saw celebrities were retweeting about it, and I was like, but man, he was a good dude, plain and simple. Well, it just, as you said, you never know what people are going through, and it's a lesson about how to treat people, yeah. right? Because um, as you mentioned, we know a lot of people that are in these positions that never extend themselves in the way that you did. It just um, take a second to make somebody's day. And you never know where that relationship yeah. will lead. I don't know about you, but I often get daily reminders that I'm old. <laughs> Okay. Trust me, you old. Wait till you get my age. I feel old because I realized recently that there are more people who probably know Ludacris from Fast and Furious yeah. than they do know he's a rapper. Yeah. Right? So with you, I'm wondering if it's a little bit of the same thing. Do people not understand most of these generation of, of fans that are watching you and yeah. only know you from TNT? They have no idea how good you were uh, as a player. Well, number one, thank you. This is my 19th year doing television, which I can't believe, number one. I think that most of these kids have no idea that I actually played in the NBA. And, and was an MVP yeah, yeah. on top of that. Uh, so I, I always find it funny. Oh, well, well the, you, it, what's even funnier, most people forget I played, but most people look at the younger generation. I'm the guy from Space Jam. It was, it was so funny. People said, how'd you know it was re- time to retire? I says, when I was walking down the street and the kids used to be, hey, that's... um." Charles Barkley. And then when I couldn't play anymore, they're like, hey, that's a guy from Space Jam. And I was like, yeah, it's time to retire when you become, you're more noted for being in a, in a movie than you are as a player. You going to be in the second one or the remake? I, I haven't been offered, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I wish them success with that because right. that movie was so much fun to do. I hope they just do it justice. I'm not sure what the storylines or anything is going to be. hope they don't just do a cash grab and make a, a crappy movie because I actually have kids coming up to me today saying how much they really, they, they're just now starting to watch Space Jam and they really loved it. Because it was a great kids movie. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the holes in my movie resume, I've never seen Space Jam. Well, oh. <laughs> I know. I know. It's, it's like, uh, it's that a thing. Is, that is. And see, I'm a movie buff. Mm-hmm. And for you not to have seen Space Jam, see, one of my favorite passions is going to the movies. And I always go at 11 o'clock in the morning. That's the best time to go. Yeah, because it's never me and a bunch of old people. And I think they're too old to know who I am. So I get my big popcorn and my big Diet Coke, and they leave me alone. And it's just fun. But I do. I love movies. What's the last good movie you saw? Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. That was really good. Uh, Green Book was great. The Hate You Give was great. Um, you like Green Book, really, Charles? I did. I felt like I it was driving Miss Daisy, except for the car was faster. <laughs> I mean, the performances were good. Well, see, first of all, you know, you know how like on my bucket list is Mahershala Ali. I love him. Uh, you know him, Eminem, Idris Elba. You know, I, I, I'm a fan of anybody who's successful. So those are three on my bucket list right now. I should just amend that. I thought the movie was good, but in terms of it being best picture, I honestly thought A Star Is Born was the best movie I saw. You, you, well. I actually thought Bohemian Rhapsody was better than The Star Is Born because I thought that was a remake. It's yeah. been remade. I mean, it is a remake. Yeah. Yes. I thought Rami Malek, his acting is Fred oh, and he deserved Mercury. that. It was best crazy. Actor. He no question. That. But I didn't realize number one how great talented he was as far as knowing music. 
Because, you know, I've been around a couple of musicians and they're like, I was at the White House one night with Stevie Wonder. Polite stunt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then somebody was singing. He's like, mm. I'm saying, excuse me? He's like, uh, they're, they're missing the beats. They're, they're missing something. And I wanted to meet Snoop Dogg. And uh, he came to the set last year. And somebody was DJing. And he's like, oh, they're not a good DJ. And he was like, oh, they're, they're off here. They're off there. And I'm like, man, there's nothing better than being around somebody who's like, a, a prodigy or something like that, and who can like, no, that's that sounds good, but it's wrong. It was pretty cool. Yeah, well, that's sometimes why I get aggravated with fans because this was always my approach as a reporter. If I'm coming to interview you, I'm not going to disrespect you or what you've yeah. done by assuming I know more than you. Now, yeah. I may ask you questions about it. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to have asked Pete Carroll, why the hell didn't you get a ball to Marshawn? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You don't have to be a genius, but, but, but I know he knows way more about the game than I ever possibly could, even if I studied it around the clock. But fans, yeah, but, unfortunately, uh, you're in a job, though. Yeah, but, but fans um, always think they know more than you. Yeah, but you have to understand something. The one thing that I don't like about our genre Sports are the only job in the world where we let plumbers, electricians, housewives, lawyers call in on the radio 24-7 and tell guys who are the best in the world they suck. (laughs) Right. I mean, think about it. It, it, It's a really interesting dynamic. Like, you don't get to call the hospital and tell the doctor, hey, I think you're doing that surgery wrong. Like, you, you suck today. But sports... Part of the whole dynamic, and that goes with how much money these guys make. People are going to talk to you about you like a dog on the radio and on TV. It all goes together. But think about it. Sports are the only genre in the world. No matter what profession you do, you get to call in and tell uh, Charles Barkley, LeBron James, Michael Jordan that they suck. <laughs> you don't like them. I mean, it's that's that's the one thing that's crazy about our profession. Yeah. There's no other job in the world that they let you do that. No, you can't call an airline pilot. No, you can like, yeah, they, I didn't like the way the pilot was flying the plane today. <laughs> to that end, one person, at least over the last decade, which is hard to believe it had really been that long, who heard that he should hang it up, that he sucked, was your boy Tiger. Um, I don't know if you guys are still cool. cool we we have not spoken. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's been a minute. You had talked about that before. Yeah. But for you as somebody... You know, you've seen his entire career. What did you think about him winning the Masters? It was one of the great days in my life. Overcoming the injuries. I knew a year and a couple years ago he could barely walk. I thought it was the greatest comeback physically ever. I was happy for him. I was proud of him. That being said, I would like him to understand a couple of things. Number one, he needs to realize all these people who are patting him on the back are the same one who've been kicking his ass the last 10 years. You know, the one thing about this fame thing, you can't think these people are your friends. They're your friends when you're doing well. So I hope this time around he realizes, you know, because you see now like all the players like him, and, and, and all the players have always liked him, I think. Even when he was winning, because there was always no, the play- these accusations that. You well, because he, he wasn't friendly to him. Yeah. But I exactly. think, you know, they respected him. Just He was just a killer. Mm-hmm. But all these announcers who s- s- dumped on him the last 10 years or more, I hope he realized these people are full of it. And I would also love for him, he's never ingratiated himself to the black community. 
And we were actually the only people who stood by him. Still did. Still did. Mm -hmm. I wish he would try to find a way, not find a way, make it happen, to go back into the black community and do some really good things and also partner with some black golfers, maybe some historically black colleges. Because the one thing that people never talk about, Jamel, and I talked to some of these older black golfers, there were more black golfers on the tour back in the day than there are today. And nobody ever mentioned it. Tiger was great for old black guys like myself, but I think he missed the boat. We need more black golfers on the PGA Tour. Yeah, it's been a different rub-off effect. Like, you look at Serena, for yes. example. But you have uh, Naomi Osaki. Yes. You have uh, Madison Keys. Yes. Yes, Sloane Stevens. Yes. She brought in yes. a generation. And yes. a lot of that had to do with... They went back in. They went back in. Tiger did never embrace the black community. That was a mistake. I'm hoping this time around... Like I say, if Tiger partnered with two or three historically black colleges gave them the best golf equipment so they could recruit. They have the best they could, uh, training facilities. He could really make a difference. Because uh, like I say, when I talk to these older black golfers, they're like, hey, we love Tiger. And this is when he was great. I'm right. talking about 10 years ago. They're like, the only problem with it, we had more black golfers back in the day than we do today mm -hmm. on tour. And yeah, I'll correct myself slightly. It's Naomi Osaka. Osaka I, said her name, yes. I said her name wrong. But you know, the interesting thing is at HBCUs, when you look at most of their golf teams, a lot of They're them- foreigners. Foreigners are yes. mostly white. I know. Yeah. I and know. so a lot of people don't- Don't know that. They don't know I, that. I actually know that. Yeah. 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 So I think it would be good to have that connection again. And like you, I was he happy- He needs that connection. He definitely, because as we all learn, uh, if you're black and prominent and at some point- the only people who are going to hold you out, down what, no, I are tell you your what, people. Listen, uh, the one thing you have to, you find out how black you are when you screw up. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's like true. Say, hey, everybody loves you, but when you screw up, like, uh, you're the black screw up. You're right. You, you on your own. It, well, with him, it's, I've always felt that distance. Like, we live in a, in a multiracial society, so nobody's 100% anything. Yeah. So I totally understand that with his roots, that he has multiple cultures no that he feels allegiance to. And I don't think anybody black was saying you need to deny those cultures. No. It's just like, why does it seem like you go out of your way to distance yourself, yourself from, from us, us. Yes. in particular? Yeah. And so while, like you, I was very happy to see him win again because his career, he was so great that people, to me, were starting to underappreciate it and devalue it because yeah. of the struggles. Yes. But at the same time, Look, I, I am one of those people who definitely will judge you by the company you keep. Yeah. And him him playing golf with Donald Trump and their relationship yeah. is bothersome to me. As And if you're going to be there, please use it for a reason in yeah. which maybe you can reestablish that connection. Well, it's, I mean, that's that's just me. OK, no, listen, listen, I'm not a Trump fan. Number one. Uh, but like I say, I hope this time around that he realized that, wait, everybody went crazy. Like, yo, man, these people ain't your friend. Yeah, they happy you won today because that's going to help the ratings and everything else. But remember, these same people have been dumping on you for 10 years. But like I say, I hope 
that he says, okay, you know what? I, re- I figured it out now. He goes back in, like I said, I hope he goes back in the black community uh, and really establish, like, because black people like, didn't turn against him. Corporate America did. Because I always tell people, his personal business ain't our business. I've never got mad at a jock for doing some of their personal life unless it was illegal. Right, unless it was a crime. I, I said <laughs> he only had to apologize to his wife and his kid. The rest of what he does is none of our business. But like I say, the physical stuff that he came back from, that's what I'm proud of him for coming back from. But I hope he uses it as an opportunity to... Remember when OJ got in trouble, like, oh, you black now, huh? <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah, okay. You can't distance yourself from black people because when you screw up, you become black in a hurry, in a real hurry. Yeah, you know a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Although you've always been somebody who's been close to the community, so I don't think you have I, I to think go it's, through that. I think it's important for me to speak mm-hmm. uh, as a black man. I, but sometimes that gets you in trouble because I hold black people accountable when they screw up. Because you have to be fair and honest. And I'm not one who do the fake black stuff. Like, sometimes I'll be sitting around watching television, and they'll be talking about a subject, and they make it racial when it's not racial. Like, no, 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 no. Don't bring race into it. We're just having a conversation. Because race is important. It's significant. It's really significant to me. Uh, and what I mean by that is, I grew up in Birmingham. Well, not not Birmingham. That's that's I don't Leeds, right? Leeds, right, right. outside of Birmingham. Mm-hmm. So I know about the church bombing. I know about Montgomery. I know about Selma. My grandmother beat me in the head. Says, "Hey, uh, when I got old enough to understand, she taught me about the church bombing and and the boycott and Selma, Montgomery. I mean, so I, I it's always been personal to me." Yeah, um, I want to ask you more about some of your outspoken opinions, but we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, more from Charles Barkley. All right, we're back with uh, Charles Barkley, chopping it up about some of everything. Uh, your boy Magic, Chuck, why'd he quit his job, man? You, you, you know, <laughs> and that, why'd he quit it that way? <laughs> well, I thought he didn't do it the right way. Yeah. You got to at least let, let Jeannie know in advance. Mm. Uh, you can't do it like that. I don't know what happened in that situation, to be honest with you. It was weird because, you know, I, watching the press conference, he starts talking about backstabbing and things like that. I'm like. That leads too much to interpretation. So uh, it was really unfortunate because Magic is a great dude. And the NBA is better when the Lakers do well. But that was just a really bad scenario, the way things went down. Yeah, do you you think this will have any impact or, you know, it doesn't seem like it might on LeBron. Like, you think he's sitting there, sitting there somewhere thinking, maybe this wasn't a wave or maybe this is a little bit more than – I thought was here because they look, you know, they presented a, a pretty picture yeah. when he, you know, yeah. Jeannie, Magic, Rob Palenka. And then now it's like, you know, the house is on fire. Well, I think that it's going to be tough to get free agents uh, because the way it's going to go down, LeBron's like a made man. If you go back and look at his career, when he wins, he's great, great, great. But when they lose, the coach sucks and the rest of the players suck. And that's the way it's been. That's just a fact. So if I'm a free agent, 
why am I going to put myself in that situation? Because LeBron's made, and if we don't win, I'm going to get the blame or the coach is going to get the blame. So I think that's going to be the biggest detriment to free agents going to L.A. Because, you know, you can go to another place and you're not under the scrutiny. Uh, you're not dealing with the pressure. You can just play basketball and make a lot of money. <laughs> and uh, ain't nothing wrong with that. Do you think that there is a perception, whether it's deserved or not, that he is a step or two slower? And that might also be a hindrance. Oh, everybody slows down. Yeah. I don't, I don't do you see that with him? Do you honestly, do you feel like he's not the same as he was? I know he's dealing with an injury yeah, this but nobody's season. the same, Jamel. Mm. Listen, no matter how hard you work out, Father Time going to get you. It's just a matter of when. The Lakers stunk, so I didn't watch a ton of them. <laughs> I only watched the good teams. They're the ones I got to talk about in the playoffs. We we know. Yeah. But, like, you think Bill Russell and Michael Jordan want to keep would, would love to be playing now where you can make $50 million a year? You retire because your body gives out. Uh, everybody's body is going to give out, plain and simple. Dwayne Wade is one of the greatest ever. It's over. Yeah. Dirk Nowitzki, one of the greatest ever. It's over. See, it looked like D-Wade could have done it for another couple of years, though. They're not in the playoffs. Yeah. You can get numbers on a bad team. Don't forget that. But can you make a difference? Right. Think about that. You got two of the greatest ever, had good numbers at the end, their last game, but they were meaningless numbers. I mean, you could, you could, we all could keep playing. If they say you can shoot it every time you get it, you can finish with a, uh, some points and some rebounds, but can you make a difference in the game? And that's the key. Has the game retired Carmelo? I think that, yes, Carmelo wasn't willing to change. You know, Jamel, it was difficult for me. My last two years, I came off the bench. Like a lot of these guys, like you have to, you have to check your ego at the door. I went to the Rockets and I said, hey, coach, I want to come off the bench. Uh, Kevin Willis is a better player than me. He said, he's not a better player than you. I said, right now he is. I was able to check my ego at the door. Carmelo still wants to be the guy who was with the Knicks, the guy who was at Syracuse. Like, everybody slow down. Um, Dwayne Wade came off the bench this year. Uh, Dirk Nowitzki came off the bench this year. Carmelo, remember, because you go back, think about it. Remember when he first got traded to Houston? No, Oklahoma City. He says, well, what do you think about coming off the bench? He just started laughing. Yeah. Like, yo, man, you a bench guy now. You you can laugh all you want to. They asked that question. Like, I remember it vividly. They said, what do you think about coming off the bench? And he says, what do you mean come off the bench? He just started laughing. Like, yeah. And first of all, it probably would have been a better situation because if you take away Paul and Russell, if he come off the bench, he's going to get all the shots and he could be like instant offense. Uh, but his ego would like, no, I'm a starter. I'm like, well, it's not going to be enough shots to go around, so your flaws are going to show more. So I thought for me, my last couple of years, I'm like, if I come off the bench, number one, I'm going to play less minutes, but also I'm playing against backups. So I can, I can, I'm better against backup than starters. But a lot of these guys won't check their ego. Along the same lines and talking about retirement, as you said, you didn't see 19 years necessarily coming at TNT, but it seemed like you had a little bit of a plan yeah. in terms of what you wanted to do after. And I always feel like the athletes 
who can't find something in post-retirement that maybe they don't love the same as they love basketball, but they don't mm. love it enough mm. to make it an alternate passion. Well, so retirement is very difficult. Mm-hmm. My mentor, the guy who's still me to get into announcement with Dick Ebersaw, he asked me like my last couple of years, he said, what do you think about television? I said, I hadn't thought about it at all. He says, you're the most honest jock I've ever been around. He said, I think you're going to be great on TV. He says, you're always going to be in trouble. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, you're always going to be in trouble. Because, you know, Charles, when people tell you they want the truth, they really don't mean it. They want their truth. And that was the first time somebody had said that to me. He says, people always want you to be honest, but they only want you to be honest if it's what they want to hear. You know, they want their favorite players great. Their favorite team is good. That's what fans want. When you tell them their team sucks or their favorite player got some flaws, they hate you. So I made the decision. But, Jamel, you have to understand something about a jock. I call it being an alien. This is if you get to play a Hall of Fame-type career. They gotta, No matter how long you play, they're going to drop you off at 30, in your mid-30s, and say, hey, good luck. You don't have an education. When I, and that, and that's, I don't mean like you're a dom. Like you haven't been in the workforce for 10, 15 years. Even if you got a degree, you ain't been in the workforce. So you ain't like you're going to walk to Microsoft and start at the top of the food chain. That's hard. And if you got any bad habits, whether it's alcohol, drugs, you're done. But the main thing you got to do, you got to find something to do. Because players ask me every year about retirement. I said, man, retirement is a hard thing. You got to find something to do. You can only play so much golf. You can only be at the carpool. It sounds great. I'm going to be a stay-at-home dad and do the carpool. Well, you drop your kids off at 8 o'clock. Now you're free to 3. What are you going to do all those hours? I mean, so... You got to find something to do. I was blessed. Television came along. But I always wonder. I, I actually saw Dwayne's uh, interview when he said he was going to get some therapy, which I, I had never heard a jock say that before. But Dwayne's unique because somebody hired Dwayne for television and things like that. But if you're an also-ran player, that's when it's very difficult. Like a networker snapped Dwayne up tomorrow if he wanted to do TV. But let's take a guy who's been in the league a few years. He got nothing. Uh, and so those are the ones I worry about. And people forget when somebody like D-Wade retires how young he still is. He is, yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're talking about somebody And he's on the top of the food chain. Like I say, if Dwayne wanted a TV job, he could get one tomorrow. But these other guys who just played X amount of years – they don't have those same opportunities. Well, I'm sure you know by now, and if not, the multiple Emmys probably have told you that the one equalizer that no network is able to find is you, okay? You're the one that everybody wants to find, another Charles Barkley. Mm -hmm. Everybody's always looking. Is there anybody that is either maybe recently retired or any player that is in the league currently that you could see coming somewhat close and even that feels like underrating you, but just could have somewhat of the type of television success that you've had. Well, number one, thank you for that compliment. And it's always nice when I hear that. You know, Jamil, I don't know the answers to that question because I don't know how people are going to react on television. 
Because we have guys in all the time, and we're like, yo, man, relax. They <laughs> like, they can sit around and joke and have fun, but when the lights come on, they got zero personality. And it's a weird thing. I'm like, dude, we were just joking around in the back. Can't you just get on TV and have fun? We're talking about some silly like basketball. So you never know how people are going to react when the big lights come on. It's it's the same in basketball. I played with guys who were great in practice, and when the lights came on, they couldn't handle it. Uh, it's the same with television. And then you know you got somebody in and says, "Hey, I need you to. Uh, we got a minute and a half." I'm like, "Okay, I got to say exactly what I want to say in a minute and a half, and I got to be in and out." And and, and I we've had guys on, and they like, like keep going, like, "Yo, man." Like tap him, like yo, we need to go to commercial. Shut up the hell up, you know, because people don't understand. You know, that's somebody in your ear the whole time, uh, and like it, it, you have to, you have to really have yourself together. Yeah, I wasn't surprised that KG was as good as he's been on TV yeah. because uh, one, I thought TNT Turner did a great job of putting him in position in a to be successful. Position to be successful. That's the number yeah. one thing. Like I couldn't imagine him yeah. being, frankly, at ESPN. Yeah. Like I couldn't, I couldn't see him you know, kind of just being at a desk and being a little, you know, kind of stiff or yeah. whatever. I don't know if, if that would have been a good fit for him. You know, the one thing that we are really good at Turner, they bring us in and ask us about guys. You know, we got a sister network that's on seven days a week. During the playoffs, we have 10 guys in every night. Uh, you know, we have our guys and then we have the guys on the NBA TV. But they says, they're like, well, what do you think about this guy? I'm like, yeah, great guy. Because, you know, like we, when we go to work, we're there from probably 7 to 2.30 in the morning. And the last thing you want to be around somebody you don't like. So they do a fantastic job of saying, hey, what do you think of this guy? And we're like, we don't think about him. <laughs> we, we, like, they're like, okay, he's out there. But they do a fantastic job. They ask, like, who do you want to work with? And we're like, oh, he like like last night we had Carlos Boozer. We had Jason Terry. We had Vince Carter. We're like, and we're just sitting around talking all night. So you want to be around people. We had Channing Fry. I mean, so you want to be around people you like if you're going to be together for six, seven hours. So you mean to tell me you like Shaq for six, seven straight hours? And, uh, not, <laughs> I, I try to stay away from him like four of those six hours. You know? <laughs> You know what's so funny about Shaq? He is a big teddy bear. I love to mess with him because I tell people. Y'all like to mess with each other. No, no, but he takes it serious. Like, I can joke. I tell people he got thinner skin than Flat Stanley. And I'm sitting there with a straight face and I know what to say. You know, when I talk about Kobe dragging him up and down the court and Dwayne Wade and just to see the veins in his forehead pop out, I love it. You know. You know, you know, it's it's so funny because you know I the one thing I miss about sports, you know, when we're taping this, I was watching the, the Russell Wilson and Sierra thing, and then I saw his two teammates do the parody, two guys. I thought it was the funnest thing ever, and that's what I miss about sports: just ribbing guys on the bus, on the plane, in the locker room. I was blessed to do that for 16 years in the NBA. And that's the one thing I missed the most, just having fun. And when I saw those two players, Parade, Sierra, and Russell, you just start laughing. Because that's what it's like in the locker room every single day. 
Right. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, and then who knows if they if they were in season, he probably would have got it worse. I know. Like when he stepped in the locker room and, the next and, day. And, and, you know, Jamel, and I, and I shouldn't say this, but it's true. The one thing that you know in the locker room is racist, is sexist, is wow. And I'm unapologetic about that. We have so much fun. And like I say, most of the stuff cannot be said publicly. But, man, I, I miss that. Growing up in Alabama with all the racial BS that went on in the day and today, I love being around white guys and there's no BS attention because that, that's the, to me, that's always been the beauty of sports. Like, where I grew up is segregated. The blacks live on one side of town, the whites live on one to the other side of town. And the only time we saw each other was at school and on the basketball court. And, and one of my best friends from high school was a guy named Pep Mock. And his mom and dad, who were two of the greatest people, ever invited me over one day. And my mom's like, well, I'm like, and you know, you're a kid, you don't get caught up, you're like, Mom, like she's like, okay, you can go, and it and it was one of the great things, and that's a beauty that I love about sports, because like like I say, people aren't born racist; they're taught to be racist, and that's really unfortunate because we all got some great people in our community, and we all got some bad people in our community, and I hate when we use a broad brush to just define any ethnic group, because it's just wrong, period. Now, is that why you seem especially equipped, because of that locker room dynamic and you're used to that, to sit down with people that you have maybe fundamental disagreements with? Because I'm thinking about your interview with Richard Spencer a couple years ago. You believe in white privilege? Yeah, white privilege is wonderful. I want to expand and deepen white you privilege. You don't consider yourself a racist. I would never say something like, I don't like black people. Uh -huh. You don't want me in your neighborhood. Right. I mean, I, I think the country is fragmenting because at the end of the day, racial differences cannot fundamentally be breached ever. What? I mean, granted, your entire face was, I could punch this dude in the face right now. I mean, yeah. your face looked like that. But the fact that you were kind of willing to do that and you've, you've been in different situations, because I also read about how I believe it was Jared Kushner who invited you to the White House. Yeah. Those locker room experiences, is that helpful for you in terms of sitting down with people that you may have, you know, real disagreement with and trying to figure out well, how to bring them well, a little well, closer to your side. When you have the type of power, when I say power, like I did a television show on race. I just wanted to start a debate. I The first show was uh, police in the black community because we need each other. And I just tried to start a dialogue. So uh, I got the cops and the black folks together, like, listen, for some reason, when I said we need the cops, some black people said like, oh, he's supporting the cops. That's the first, that's not what I, I said, yeah, I do support the cops. That does not mean I want them killing unarmed black men, but we need each other. And I want to start a dialogue. And then I did a Muslim family and people who didn't like Muslims. And I did one on immigration and people who don't want immigrants here. And I brought everybody together in the end, and one of the things I was talking about, this idiot Spencer, 
And he is an idiot. That was probably one of the most painful two hours of my life to sit there and and every and then and then he he kept pissing me off because every few minutes he's like Charles, you know what? I don't dislike black people. I just don't want to be around them. I don't want them in my neighborhood. I don't want to work with them. And uh, and then then he says we shouldn't be race mixed. And I'm like, first of all, we have to race mix. We work together. We want to eat together. Our kids go to school together. We have to race mix. But he's just an idiot. Now, the thing with Jared Kushner, so I gave a million dollars, well, two of them. I gave young black women in Alabama to do a million dollars to IT startups. And it's going fantastic. But I also gave a million dollars to young black kids to be learn to be electricians, plumbers, and carpenters. Because, you know, one of the reasons I made the role model commercial back uh, in the day was we as players do a lot of speaking. And we go, there's a lot of segregated schools in this country. And the one thing that bothered me was when I would go to these predominantly white schools, I said, well, well how many of y'all want to play pro sports? And it was only like 5 to 10% at the most. And I'm like, well, what do you want to do? I want to be a doctor. Well, you got a lawyer, engineer, teacher, fireman, policeman. But when I would go to the predominantly or all black schools, I said, well, how many of y'all want to play sports? It's pretty much 100%. And I, was, I went to Nike. I said, I think our kids are brainwashed to think they can only be rappers, uh, entertainers, and jocks. Uh, they don't think they can be doctors and lawyers and engineers and teachers and things like that. Because they're going by what they see. That's it. Yeah. And I said, I want to make this commercial. They're like, you're crazy. They're like, you're going to get killed. I said, I'm a big boy. I can handle it. So I made the commercial. This day, even to this day, probably one of the most things I'm proud of. But to get back to my other point. So I gave a million dollars to young black kids. Well, because what happened was I had built my mother a house when I went to the NBA. Her and my grandmother. And they both had passed away, but I wanted to keep the house in the family. I wanted it remodeled. And I'm in Alabama with all my homeboys, and they're like, yo, man, y'all know any black carpenters, electricians, plumbers? They're like, nah, man, these kids don't want to do that. And I was like, wow. So when I got the house remodeled, I made up my mind that, you know what, I, I, these kids, we need some black plumbers, electricians, and carpenters. So I, somehow Jared Kushner found out about it. And one of his platforms is vocational schools. So he calls me and I says, listen, Jared, number one, I don't want to be on camera. I don't want to see your father-in-law. <laughs> right. But I'll come to the White House if you're serious. Oh, I met him at the Allen Conference uh, in Idaho. That's where we met. So he said, can I have your information? I gave it to him. That's how we met. But I say, I said, listen, I'm not a big fan of your, your wife's dad. <laughs> so please, I don't want to be on camera. They snuck me in. We had a great- So you did, you did go? I did go. Okay. And we had a great conversation. And uh, hopefully it'll go further. Because mm-hmm. like I say, I'm on my mission. And hopefully he can help me with my mission. Yeah, no. I mean, I think, that, I mean, part of what's so frustrating is that um, as you said, people are neither good nor nor bad. A lot there's a lot of gray in between, and I think the frustrating part, as I watch this administration, is that I know things like that happen 
behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know that this administration has advanced the criminal justice reform mm-hmm. agenda, but they're too comfortable letting racists just take over the party and control and dominate the conversation. Well, see, it's interesting you say that because I don't look at it. I, I, you might be right, and I'm not saying you're wrong. I think that we spend too much time in this country talking about race. What I mean by that is, I think the disconnect in America between rich and poor. I think rich people have abandoned poor people. And from a political standpoint, Republicans are better for rich people. Uh, Yeah, I think race has obviously something to do with it. But I think the disconnect with these parties and people are... I think rich people, they just uh, uh, abandon poor people. Uh, that's that's just my personal. I'm not saying I'm right or you're wrong. I think if we spent more time as people saying, how can we help these poor people? Because what they've done is, if you look at it, like they got uh, the blacks against the whites, because now the whites are starting to be poor because the rich are only getting richer. So now the middle class, they, they're they like, well, the reason your life is not successful is because the, we gave all these black people jobs. And then- Or brown people. No, no, no. That's my point. <laughs> yeah. Now they spend it off. Your life sucks because all these Hispanics are taking your jobs. Which, first of all, let's be one thing. I live in Arizona. I think the Hispanics are amazing people. They do the work whites and blacks don't want to do. They are amazing people. But I think that sometimes- we get so blind that, like, yeah, racism does exist, always has, always will. But what this Republican Party is doing is they never talk about rich people because rich people are always going to be rich. But they're like, how do we help the middle class? Well, the middle class, we got to keep stomping on black people and brown people because they're the reason you're not successful. That, to me, is what we need to spend more time talking about. Well, the problem, I mean, race and class are interwoven. But yes. the problem is that the Republican Party in particular, and the Democrats used to do this too, they both had their turns, is they've done a really excellent job of convincing the working poor and working class people. And Martin Luther King Jr., part of the reason he was so dangerous is because he had actually united, despite whatever racial category you fit, they've always been able to convince them to vote against themselves Mm -hmm. and their best interests because they played that blame game and said, hey, the reason you don't have X is because they have these resources, they're getting that. And so they don't realize that when you vote against legislation for universal health care or for the improvement in minimum wage, Mm -hmm. when the law is not going to say, okay, all the white people, they get a higher minimum wage, but not all the black and brown people. It's like, Mm -hmm. it doesn't work that way. But they don't understand that. um, But that goes back to what I was saying earlier. Television... Is so powerful. People don't take the time to do their own research. Like, we are so brainwashed by what some guy or some woman says on television. We don't ever fact-checked or anything like that. So uh, you're, you're 100% correct. But, man, that's why when I get on television, I ain't never going to lie. That doesn't mean I'm always right. Because... There's somebody in South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana, Maine. Like when I said something like, well, that player or that team is supposed to be legitimate. They don't realize we're just like little pawns in a chess game. Like, I just got to get these people to think this way. Like, I just got to get somebody in Iowa to think like, 
yeah, my life sucked because of some Mexican guy took the job or some black person took the job. People in Maine calling for a border wall don't yeah. have a border. <laughs> they do not. They <laughs> like, do not. Who, who's sneaking yeah. into Maine, yeah, man? Yeah. Like, no disrespect. Nobody. Uh, okay. I, I was like, yeah. So, but but, but, but you, that's the way this whole thing works because yeah. people are too lazy to ask to do their due diligence. If you think about it, too, it's also very comforting to people sometimes to dig down into their ignorance because... It can be a way of of deflection and not taking responsibility. No question. Like we could, I, we could, we had a lot of conversations leading to the election about coal miners, yeah. right? And I saw this great story that the Washington Post did about how a number of clean energy organizations mm-hmm. have come into West Virginia. They've come into these places, offered new training, offered classes, because. Part of the reason the regulations had to happen is folks needed to not be dying from black lung disease. All right. Do you want black lung disease? Okay. You don't get on this renewable energy. They've offered classes, all these. They go to these classes. Nobody's in them. Nobody. Now, black people have been been told since the beginning, we always adapt. And they quick to tell us what we need to do and where we need to go and how we need to reeducate. But yet for these group of working poor whites, many of them have not trained themselves for this new world and new America, and it's been right there. Yeah. And they have not taken advantage of it. But, but what you said, something very interesting, uh, number one, that was a great point. When you talk about these elections and politicians talking, very few people had the courage to look in the mirror and say, my life sucked because of me. Because I made some choices yeah, that yeah, maybe yeah. I shouldn't it's, have it's, or it's, I didn't adapt. It's, the least, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to say, my life sucked because of that person, that person. Very few people, uh, because it takes tremendous courage. Yeah. Very few people want to look in the mirror and say, damn, I should have graduated from high school, college. I shouldn't have had all these kids that I can't afford. It, it's just easier to blame other people. Well, I mean, and and I'm not even trying to come from a, a standpoint of being on like some respectability politics shit, but I will say that like part, to me the greatest sin other than racism we're committing right now is in our educational system. Well, it's, a, it's a travesty. That's where built-in racism happens every single day. And, you know, even though, like you said, it's, it's a class divide, but the fact that what's happened in our urban cities to what's happened in many of our urban communities with education, with the public school system is it's, it's really a tra- it's a shameful. It's it, really it, shameful. You know, you got the, and so number one, I'm glad you brought that point up. You got the greatest country in the world. And when rich white people, and, and number one, bless them, I don't hate on them, when they created the suburbs and charter schools and things like that, and left all the poor kids to go to public school, and if you actually do your homework and due diligence, you see when they, anytime they need money, they take it from the public school system. And also, this is another dirty secret which drives me crazy. The cost of college. Yeah. The cost of college in this country is a travesty and a disgrace because you eliminate probably 55% of kids when you say, well, I want to go to this school. Well, it's like $60,000 or $50,000 a year. Like, if I'm a parent, I'm like, I'm not getting in debt for that. So you eliminate some of the brightest kids, some of the best minds in the world. Like, my daughter, who's amazing... Uh, she just graduated from Columbia grad school. But I was talking to her one day about Villanova. She went to undergrad at Villanova. It was about $55,000 a year. 
And I was saying to myself, man, I'm so lucky to be able to pay that. But how many kids can't even sniff Villanova? They don't even think about a school like that because they, they know they, they, they can't know, afford yeah. it. And, and, but that's really unfair. Because, like I say, I love my daughter more than anything in the world. She's my only kid. And, like I say, she's brilliant. But there's probably kids smarter than her who, if they could afford to go to Villanova, would go. But, like, you eliminate so many kids. And that's still part of the, the public thing we're talking about. The greatest country in the world has the worst public school system in the, in the world. That's crazy. Well, I mean, it's a lot of different things that have led to that, you know, white flight, redlining, a ton of different things that we'd be here all, all day if we name. But uh, I think it's, it's personally, you know, disgusting and shameful as a public school product that basically if you're born into the wrong zip code, you fucked. You are. That, that's you, just you, how it is. You're born yeah, in the wrong zip code, it, it, it's over. And see, that to me is one of the great dishonorable things about our country. You should not be born into poverty for life. You should have a chance to be successful. And because I hate, one of these things I hate is when I hear people get on TV and say, well, all they got to do is work harder. I said, first of all, that's not true. <laughs> oh, the bootstrap crowd, yeah, yeah, my favorite. <laughs> yeah. And because, number one, they're not, they, they, they're not getting the same level of education as some of these private schools and charter schools and some of these really good schools. I mean, you, you're coming in, like, so, and then these kids have to worry about violence every single day. And, yeah, the bootstrap crowd are really annoying. Yeah. I mean, we should not have a system where you succeed in spite of rather than because of. Yes. Yeah, and that's what we have right now. Um, real quick before we wrap up this segment, no Chuck. Stuff like this is fine for me because you know this. I am very cognizant of the black journalist. I go out of my way to work with them because they don't have a platform. Because when I came to the NBA in 1984, there was only like one black person in every city. <laughs> there was about 15 reporters, but there was only one black person. And I learned it from Doc and Moses guys like, hey, because uh, I, I guarantee you, more black reporters got my phone number than any job oh, I, in the world. I don't think there's any question yeah, about that. Like, <laughs> no hey, question. Because if you need me for a story, don't abuse it. But if you need me, call me. Right. Because I understand the, the fight. And the point I was trying to make was, and first of all, I love my white reporter friend. I, I don't want to make it about that. But they don't ask me stuff like this. Uh, one of the reasons I want to do your podcast, and like I say, uh, and I, you know, and I, and and I, I know they call between a rock and a hard place. Uh, you know, it's kind of like this whole Kaepernick thing. You know, they're like, yo, man, people want to watch sports to watch sports. They ain't, they ain't caring about the Kaepernick. They who's standing for the anthem and blah blah blah. And like I say, I, listen, I, I'm pretty sure uh, my, my white friends who are reporters like. Yo, man, I just, I just want to score. <laughs> I want, to, I don't know how many points and who, who, what, what y'all do wrong. My readers don't want to read about a, the bad public school system and white flight and things like that. And I says, I understand it. I do understand it. They're put in an awkward situation. So, like I say, when I get an opportunity to do uh, a, a podcast with you 
I was really excited for it because I know you're going to ask me stuff that's that's important to me and you. Yeah. And look, most black reporters, they have appreciated like how you have made yourself available. I remember when me and Mike had the show, His and Hers, and you came, we were in Arizona yeah. and, we, and you yeah. came on the show and we had a great time. And Granted, you almost killed my staff or the production staff the night before when you <laughs> we all went out drinking. We were drinking in the hotel. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I'll gladly take that that uh, few hours of pain the next morning um, to hang out with you. But um, I don't know if black athletes today feel that same sense of responsibility because it's not just about giving us access. People have to understand if we can have a Charles Barkley comment in a column or have him on our show, mm-hmm. just how differently that positions us. Right. Um, If we can get a LeBron exclusive or this kind of thing, that means a lot for our personal careers. And it ensures that there will be more black journalists Mm -hmm. that come behind us so that there'll be more fair and accurate coverage. But I think these guys today, first of all, I don't want to be the old get off my lawn guy. I'm often the old woman yelling at Cloud. Don't worry about it. (laughs) We thought it was part of our obligation. A lot of these guys don't even talk to the media that often because they have social media they now. Have social, but, yeah. but but that's part of your job is to do the media but also like wait all these fans ain't following you they're watching the news or read the newspaper or reading it online you need to talk to your beat writers they're there to help you i mean when you screw up they're gonna write bad stuff about you but but they can provide some context because yes, they know you yes right and so it's a different animal now uh, and listen, I get nervous about social media because I'm not sure all these guys are equipped. <laughs> Some of them need a filter. <laughs> yes. because They need a go-between. <laughs> well, because I say, number one, so a lot of these kids, 18, 19-year-old, they don't know anything. I would hate for somebody to, at 18 years old, say, hey, Charles, go play in the NBA. No, not three years of college, not being around... Uh, Dr. J. Moses, Andrew Tonic, uh, Maurice Cheeks, and those guys who taught me more about life than just basketball. And I tell them, like, sometimes you're drunk. Sometimes you're mad. That's why I do no social media. And I worry about these kids. Because once you say it, like Herm Edwards, I was like, don't push sin. Yep. <laughs> but like I say, when I lecture college kids, I says. Why is a person in another city following you? Because they want to piss you off at some point. If you're having a bad game or you beat their team, don't respond. That's why I do no social media because clearly I could be drunk. (laughs) I could be mad. uh, You know, I could be having a bad day. And if somebody says something, I'm not going to let it go. Right. I I don't have that let go gene. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Uh, So... I just worry about some of these young kids when they got that computer in their hand. Yeah, I'm just glad that I wasn't like 16, 17 having social media because you see these athletes get nabbed with these old tweets. Yeah, I know. And I was like, I I was a grown woman with a job that I could lose and wouldn't pay my bills when social media came around. And I still made, you know, my share of mistakes and had some ups and downs. But the thing is, they don't realize, like, it don't go away. Mm -mm. You know, because, you know, I, I very seldom use my computer and, I watch the crime shows, and they're like, uh, stuff that deleted is still in there. I said, what? <laughs> Get to kill the hard drive. It's in the hard drive. I'm like, how do you burn this? Like, uh, but you just, you'll be laughing like, wait, is, 
once you delete something, it's still there. Like, what good is deleting it then? <laughs> you know, you can email people. Like, you don't always have to be doing nefarious things on your computer. Okay? Yeah, but, you're like, but I'm saying, you, know, you you would think that if you delete something, it's gone. And they're like, no, it's there. You yeah. just, like, they can get it. I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One last question before we wrap up the sure. segment. In 2020, our president will be. Well, you know, I, I got to admit, I'm so disappointed uh, in the Democrats as a Democrat. I like Joe Biden, but I think he's too old. And I don't really feel like going through a year-long coverage of of his hugs and yeah, his, yeah, and yeah, his kiss. Yeah. I, I just don't Distractions. Even like, I just don't even feel like going right. through that. Yeah, right? you know, so, you know, see, this is this is what's interesting about. It's so funny you said that because I, you know, we got a president who talked about doing way worse things to women, and Joe Biden announced he he has. I don't even think he's officially announced, no, and they're making a big deal of him hugging a couple of women. I'm like, Eight, five course, seconds too long. Uh, yeah, five no, seconds too no, long. But Chuck. I, no, no, but I'm saying though. The way things are going, that would make him more, more proud. Yeah, like, right, that's wait, our qualification. That's a qualification. <laughs> he should be grabbing more women, apparently, yeah. if because that's what we need. I haven't decided who I'm going to support. I really like Julian Castro. Yeah, he brings fast yes. for sure. I really like Julian Castro. He's probably the leader in my clubhouse right now. Mm-hmm. I actually like the mayor from Indiana. Yep. Budachik. <laughs> uh, I like Budachik. Uh But right now, uh, I probably am leaning towards supporting Julian Castro, but I haven't made a final decision. Okay. What we got coming up next after the break, Chuck, I know you're going to love a segment like this because it's tailored for somebody like you. It's a segment we call Fuck It, I'm Bothered. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> All right, as we close out every show with a, my favorite segment, Chuck is laughing already. Yeah. It's called Fuck It, I'm Bothered. And while the name of the podcast is about being unbothered, uh, as I often say, it's not about not being passionate about things. It's just you just don't give a fuck anymore and you don't care about what people think. But nevertheless, there are still little things that may bother you, pet peeves, something big or small. Um, and I just got to get it off my chest. So Fuck It, I'm Bothered about people who I don't know who I've never met before in life, and this is, to your point, the downside of social media, Chuck, is a lot of people on social media feel like they have some claim to your life or that they know you in real life. So I have a couple people who I think all I said is thank you to after they extended a compliment, like good show or, you know, good article. And now they every day send me daily affirmations and all this shit I don't want to read. And I'm like, why are you sending me these affirmation videos and your favorite Bible verses? I don't even know you, son. For you to be playing armchair quarterback with me, I don't need to be affirmed by people I don't know. So stop sending me these daily devotionals just because I said thank you one time. That shit bothers me, so quit it. See, I told you I was old hey, woman yelling at hey, cloud. Hey, hey I, I'm with you. <laughs> right? I'm with you. Don't daily affirm right. me. I got people in my yeah. life that do that. I don't even know you. I don't need your affirmations. Anyway, thank you, Chuck, for joining me. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I consider you a great friend. You are one of the best people that I know. And um, yeah, man, I'm, I'm just here for you always. Well, I appreciate it. I'm proud of you. I know you've had a lot going on. 
You like Ali to me. Oh, stop it. No, I no, know no, you didn't no, tell no, me this. No, oh. no, no, no. Uh, not like Ali. <laughs> but he had a saying, I ain't afraid to be me. You ain't afraid to be you. I respect that. I do. I try to live by that motto. I ain't afraid to be me. And you have uh, you have showed everybody. You ain't afraid to be you. Hey, I tell kids all the time, uh, you know, that say, oh, I want to be like you. It's already one me. Uh, There's be, not one you. And, you be, and be better. And be better. And be better. <laughs> all right. Thank, thank you, doll. Thanks, Chuck. Mel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Jamel Hill.